1: Welcome to the Deceptively Fast Podcast. I'm Seth Payne. I played 10 years in the NFL. Now I host a radio show and I do this podcast. If you enjoy it, please subscribe. You could leave a five-star review just like somebody who claims to be Dat Datwin did just the other day. I don't think this is really Datwin, but fake Datwin says, can't spell dumb with D-U. He left a five-star review but then said, can't spell dumb with D-U. The saying is supposed to be you can't spell dumb without D-U because I was a I was a member of fraternity in college at Cornell. I was in Delta Upsilon, D-U. And one of the sayings around campus because we were the football fraternity was you can't spell dumb without D-U. So I got to tell you, fake that win. That hurts. That hurts me to my core that you would bring up those old memories of me being called a stupid caveman on campus. No matter how much truth there was to it. it, it this is even more embarrassing. One time we were out at a party and one of my... One of my friends, who was a bright guy, but he was really drunk, uh, some girl said to him, she was just messing with him. She said, well, you know what they say, you can't spell dumb without DU. And he very quickly responded, oh, yeah? Well, you can't spell diploma without DU either. And, uh, and, he, and he really thought he had put one over on her. That hurts. Anyway, so fake that win. Thank you for the Thank you for the five-star review. I'm assuming I know who you are. Uh, everybody else, enjoy the show and please subscribe and have some fun. Oh, this is this is Brett Coleman that we've got on today. He's a Texans fan, but more importantly, he is the owner of the account, the YouTube account, the Film Room, which does really cool, really in-depth breakdowns of NFL players' schemes. Uh, he's got several hundred thousand followers on youtube or subscribers on youtube so this is his full-time profession his full-time his job and he is just as smart as hell so some really good insight from him on about both the texans but also deshaun watson jj watt and some other trends around the league enjoy the show i'm gonna do brett hello by the way first hello okay this is what i'm gonna do i am going to give your bio without having actually looked at your bio at all and i'm just gonna go based on my memory of how i came to know about brett coleman so i would say maybe around 2011 or 2012 2012 2013 i was getting back into doing some media stuff after i'd been out of out of the league for a few years And Brett Coleman was a Texans fan who also happened to work for NFL films. And I, and, and, and I could tell he was a really bright and knowledgeable kid, um, that, that was really like wanted to learn and know more about football. And then you fast forward to now six, seven, eight years later. And he has a, he has a channel on YouTube called the film room with thousands upon thousands of subscribers tens and tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of subscribers uh, and he does really in-depth breakdowns of nfl players nfl schemes nfl teams and uh it's it's been really cool to watch this transformation of a, of a young texans fan is that did i get that about right
2: yeah a pre- pretty damn close it was uh it was nfl network which is over in la what some people don't realize is nfl films is actually in new jersey oh that's right yeah oh, in fact that's where uh, Cassell and all his guys do that. I mean, we, we still work together. So I, part of my job one summer was sending hard drives back and forth to NFL films uh, to get ready for NFL honors. Uh, I don't know why everything isn't centralized, but it's the NFL. Half the stuff they do doesn't make sense. But yeah, I was at NFL Network for, uh, for five years. I started in the 2012 season and my last day there, which was the day before I did YouTube full time, was uh, the Patriots Falcons Super Bowl
1: oh no kidding okay yeah. and then you just and you went into you just decided at that point you, at that point what year was uh let's see so we're uh, talking what year was the falcons uh february F- of 2017 2017 yeah. that was when being a full-time youtuber was still kind of almost like uh, people almost thought that was a bubble that was going to burst didn't they
2: yeah, I got a lot of looks about that where, you know, and at the time, like I, I only had like 11,000 subscribers, but I I also was like barely putting out any stuff, like all the videos I were putting out during that time was basically just proof of concepts for my producers because I wanted to make it like make that stuff for NFL Network. Never ended up working out there just because my format just doesn't really work for broadcast television, as I think we've all figured out by now uh, with how much I drink on camera. Um, <laughs> But so my my wife said, like, look, you're barely even trying at this and you've got 11,000 subscribers. What happens if you actually try? So she actually encouraged me to quit NFL Network and just kind of take a chance on this. And, you know, I slept on an air mattress in my in-laws bonus room for the next 10 months trying to, you know, not bleed myself dry of savings while I tried to make this thing work. And eventually it got off the ground. And and now here I am.
1: No kidding. So it was a year. I, I assumed that you would have already had some income from it and that you maybe figured that, okay, this is going to work. That We see the trajectory. I didn't know it was
2: such a leap of faith for you. Oh, to yeah. I, just I, get was, out. I lost money for the first 10 months. <laughs> Man, <laughs> like I was the... I was negative money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, so I, we're not going to be able to hold off talking about the Texans for long. I told you, I told you when I wanted to have you on—that we would talk very little actual football—and I just I wanted to talk a lot about um, your videos because I'm I'm just intrigued and I'm kind of blown away by the audience you've built. But you are a Texans fan, at least for now. And <laughs> today, J.J. Watt announced that he and the team will be mutually parting ways. What is somebody that breaks down film? Is somebody that has watched the Texans very closely? Just give me your overall assessment of what it's been like for you. Let's say
2: the past eighteen months. Um, profound sadness, helplessness. Um, it's it's very much akin to like seeing a car crash coming and wanting to do everything you can to push the car out of the way, but you can't, you you just, you know, like this has all been slow motion ever since they lost that 24, nothing lead to the chiefs. Like that was the first clue of like, Oh, some stuff's got to change here. Um, and then when nothing changed except the negative stuff of like, well, we just lost to the chiefs. Let's get rid of our best receiver for nothing. Um, like, Oh, this is a loaded receiver class, which maybe we have hope of, you know, getting a young guy that might one day get to 70% of what new Copkins was, let's trade away our, our second round pick in that loaded receiver class for a receiver that's already very expensive and has a, a massive injury history. That's very concerning and who in the previous three years had averaged like 60 yards a game. Let's give up a high value draft asset for that. Let's let DJ reader uh, our second best defensive lineman walk out the door like all of these moves in that one offseason were already extraordinarily concerning but then when you compound everything that's happened in the last 12 months on top of that like again it's it's a car crash that we've all seen coming and yet none of us could stop and it's absolutely gut wrenching
1: and and that's what's so nerve-wracking about it too is that you see it happen in slow motion and you see move after move or each step along the way you could make mild defenses of some of these moves or at least see okay this individual move makes sense if these other eight things work out but it's just been a it's been a steady tearing apart of any talent base that was already on the team and i would add into that just the inactivity around the defense because you saw what happened in the playoff game with to to the Chiefs and however many unanswered points or unanswered uh, scoring series there were consecutive scoring series in that game, um, and then they did nothing to help the defense. You signed Eric Murray. You you got rid of DJ Reader, and you left you left Anthony Weaver, who I'm guessing thought he was going to get some more support than a couple of. Yeah, second and third round draft pick and uh and, and some journeyman signings as, as free agents. I don't know where I don't know where this ends, Brett. This is so as JJ as JJ Watt announces his departure from the team today and with him leaves your one viable pass rusher and playmaker on the defensive line, really. Um I don't know where it ends because I don't I don't understand what the decisions how the decisions are being made other than that they seem to have some Obsession with culture and character above and beyond anything like resembling uh, an appreciation for football talent. I that's where that's where it bothers me, Brett. As a, as a former player, I watch the Texans right now, and it looks like they actually have no genuine understanding or respect for actual football talent.
2: Uh, I because they're, and we always heard the you know, the oh this guy has character red flags. The Texans would never take him in the first round. Like, we always heard that kind of stuff, which it's like, okay, I can understand that. But now it's like, oh, well, Amy wasn't a culture fit. Let's get rid of Amy. You know, Jamie's resigning because the culture is shifting. JJ wants for his release. If JJ Watt does not want part of your culture, it's a bad culture. I don't care what culture you're trying to build. If it doesn't include elements that J.J. Watt wants to buy into get a new culture.
1: Yeah. And that's that's the fascinating part of it is, okay, what, what exactly is your definition of what the culture is? Because when guys like Deshaun Watson and J.J. Watt, who are seemingly everything you would want from a cultural standpoint, right? Um, those are the guys that are the canaries in the coal mine. And they're saying, something's wrong here. I don't like it. I'm getting the hell out how is cal mcnair the owner just somehow saying oh no it's um like easterby's got a plan and he and casario know what they're doing when all these otherwise very respected people with voices say they want out i i don't get it I, and you know what you brought up dj reader dj reader is a funny one because like dj reader is a football player and as for his football character goes i would want 20 DJ readers on my team. Mm -hmm. But I think that I I also know that DJ Reader is a guy that has a mind of his own and can speak for himself. And I think that anybody like that like anybody that has a mind of their own and actually conducts himself like an adult and maybe can sniff out b s is probably a short timer with the Texans. That's why I think Justin Reed, I don't think Justin Reed lasts very long because I think Justin Reed might not be as malleable and as controllable as somebody like like Jack easterby
2: wants no. just Justin Reed, if he knows what's best for him. Charles O'Metta, who all these young players that like, we've seen like, okay, they're for real. Like, I don't know how the hell they roped uh, Zach Cunningham into staying. Um, but like, you go back a few years in this Texans team, all the great players, Dwayne Brown, Kareem Jackson, AJ Boye, um, you know, obviously reader and the Watt and nuke and all like you go back and look at some of those rosters from like the mid to late 2010s up until the last two years, they were unbelievable. They were arguably as good of rosters once Deshaun got there. Like that 2017 Texans team, once Deshaun got there, was as good of a roster, at least damn close to it, of what the Bucs just won the Super Bowl with. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the, the coaching to get them there. But I mean, th- th- those were incredible rosters that were built by people not named Jack Easterby. You know, they were built by Gain and Smith and even to a degree, Bill O'Brien. I'll give him some credit for some of that, too. But like they were not built by Jack Easterby. That was the most talented Texan team we ever had. And yet they're like, well, well, Jack can make it better.
1: <laughs> well, and that's where I, I think what's so hard about J.J. leaving is an, it's not a shock or anything. I've, I've known this was coming for a long time but it is that sense of squandered opportunity that especially if Deshaun Watson doesn't end up on this team, you look over the course of all those names that you just mentioned. And, and the frustrating thing about being a Texans fan is that they were stuck in that mode of, okay, they're a playoff team, but nobody's, nobody's really expecting or anticipating that they make a deep push into the playoffs. Cause they're always just, they're just short in this area. Or they, they come up a little shy in that area. And it's, uh, I I I find myself weirdly emotional today. Like you know, I I'm, I'm trying to. I've been sitting down and like trying to compose some tweets, like as a nice tribute to JJ. I recorded like four videos I was going to put out on Twitter, and <laughs> every single time it derails into a rant about Jack Easterby, which I don't feel is quite appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm trying to. say. I feel like if I were giving up, if I were to get up at a eulogy at a funeral or something, and halfway through I start ranting about the guy's ex-wife, you're like okay, there's a time and a place. I got to try to. I mean, I gotta- to be
2: fair, I'm right there with you because when I quote tweeted JJ's statement, my first words were "f Jack Easterby." And they, were not, <laughs> yeah. they were not that nice. Like every single Texans fan feels the same way. Every like I don't know a single Texans fan that is unhappy with JJ. Or and it's very few that are unhappy with Deshaun, and the ones that are unhappy with Deshaun are the ones that are that are going to be unhappy no matter what.
1: Right? They they just absolutely get it. I'm supposed to with this podcast. I'm supposed to keep more of a national focus than just on Houston. So uh, I'll I'll do something that's palatable for everybody. Deshaun and and actually and uh, again, I want to I really want to promote your the film room as much as possible because it's really amazing content. Um, Deshaun as a quarterback, watching him this year. Where did you see growth? Where do you see him going in the future? And, and where do you think he would fit best if he were to leave the Texans?
2: I think the the big thing we saw growth with was not just getting a picture pre-snap, but then seeing whatever you roll to post snap and immediately having an answer for it, um, particularly in that Patriot Patriots game where, you know, he would, he would get a picture pre-snap. Uh, he would do a motion check. They would show him something new. And then it, despite his receiving core at that point being, you know, Brandon cooks and a bunch of guys, he was still able to tear them up because he knew exactly what they were in. And if you give somebody as accurate as Deshaun the ability to to know immediately before the ball's even snapped, where he's going with the football, then it all is almost just, it's like, it's like, he's, you know, going through the motions, which I, sounds bad, but really when it comes to quarterback play, if you're just going through the motions and you and you just have answer, 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 it almost looks casual and carefree. And he makes the quarterback position look casual at times, in, you know, interspersed with some crazy athletic plays that'll do. But the fact that he makes it look easy and you never feel unease as a Texans fan when the offense is on the field, because you know that Deshaun's going to make the right decision that's up. I'm, I'm glad the, you phrased it that way. Cause I think it's something that's happened maybe over the
1: past 20 years in the NFL is that you used to talk about quarterbacks going through their progressions. And I think sometimes now people want to see almost evidence of a guy looking at like number one, Oh, there's number two. Oh, there's number three where really the, the advanced guys nowadays are, they're making their snap progressions, are they not? Mm-hmm. But it's it's yeah. a matter of like, okay, I know where the opening's going to be if they rotate to cover three at the snap. So you you really shouldn't be seeing a guy necessarily methodically go through his progressions.
2: Yeah, you know, you'll, you'll have a man beater side. You'll have a zone beater side. You know, it's like if you're two by two, you'll have like, I don't know, a slant flat front side as your man beater off a motion check. You'll have smash on the backside as, uh, as, as like a zone beater. And then he just looks pre-snap, whatever whatever the coverage he sees is. If he thinks it's man or zone, you know, the first place he looks just is, is that. It's not like the old school West Coast stuff where it's like, you know, you look here, then here, then here, then here. Like, it all depends on the coverage. Um, and, and I think we're seeing a lot of defenses do that. And not to get too technical, but I think the rise of, like, split field coverages is, like, part of a way to – counteract that because the spread passing game is very much like a man side and a zone side and so split field coverages like they'll play both basically at the same time mm-hmm. and so that's kind of like an interesting cat and mouse but even against like teams that play a lot of split field like Kansas City uh he was still carving them up because he's just brilliant and I, and that's a rare quarterback to have that kind of athletic ability with almost like an eidetic memory and like the spatial awareness that that Deshaun has it's Like he and Patrick Mahomes, I think are pretty damn close to one another. If I'm being honest, it's they, they do different things well. And obviously I'd put Pat first just because Pat, I think does the crazy stuff better than Deshaun that nobody else can do. But in terms of just like, you know, who can go out there with Chad Hansen as the number one receiver and still lead the league in passing. That's Deshaun. (laughs) Well, yeah. And I,
1: that's the, I guess that's the other question, you know, and I get that all the time from people outside of Houston is, okay, well, how good can Deshaun be if the team went four and 12? And, and I, and I respond, well, no, the question is how bad can the Texans be without Deshaun <laughs> Watson? Right. Cause it's. It's as simple as that. I, I don't want to overly simplify it, but it's it's conceivable that without Deshaun Watson and that that roster right there, that they end up going zero sixteen, or you know, everybody can luck their way into a couple of a couple of wins in a, in a game. But it's it's just, and you take some bad luck with some one score games and whatnot. But it's just hard not to envision Deshaun going to if Deshaun goes to a mediocre football team, they immediately become. A a team that's at least capable of making a deep playoff push.
2: If if the Bears retain their core and they don't do a fire sale, they somehow get Allen Robinson back, which I think if they get Deshaun would be a big thing of getting Allen Robinson back, because he's already got his money. He just wants to go somewhere with a quarterback. I think Allen Robinson would take a cheap contract to play with Deshaun in Chicago in an offense he already knows, and you you just drop Deshaun in that Bears roster. You know, you, you sprinkle in a couple extra draft picks for offensive line depth and, you know, you convince some of the veterans to restructure their contracts because, my God, they're short on cap space, but it's doable. It is 100% mathematically doable. You put Deshaun with the Bears roster, I, they give Packers a, a run for their money in the division. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: What about J.J. Watt? Um, Like, what do you foresee for him if he ends up on the right scheme? Where's the right scheme?
2: You know, uh, that's uh, for J.J. I think he's one of those guys that can play in any scheme. You know, it's it's the Reggie White. It's the Bruce Smith. It's the you want him to play true 4-3 defensive end. He can do that. You want him to eat a couple extra biscuits and basically play a, an under tackle. I mean, he did that with Wade all the time. Um, you want him to play more of like uh, a four or a five. He can do that, too. Like, it doesn't really matter with J.J. He's a guy that can do anything. So I think it's less about scheme fit with him. And it's more about where does he want to go immediately? The three options that popped to mind are the Packers because he grew up a Packers fan, his family's there, um, Chicago, because his wife plays in Chicago. And I think he would love to be near her more often, uh, or Pittsburgh because again, his brothers are in Pittsburgh. I think it's, it's very much a family oriented decision for him. And he's got three different options, uh, with family. And I, I, I would anticipate either the Steelers, the bears, if somehow the Bears find the money, uh, or the Packers being where he ends up,
1: the one thing I think with with Chicago and Pittsburgh, I would imagine there's part of him that really, really wants to play for a good defense. <laughs> you know, um, the, the, you want to get back to actually having some success on defense. With the Packers, obviously, there's there's more of a question mark there, but there's also the hometown appeal. The one wild card team that makes a lot of sense in a lot of respects, but I don't know if this would jibe with what his family wants is the Baltimore Ravens because they do such a good job of getting guys one-on-one matchups that that I could see J.J. It would be with a different style, but kind of the same concept of what he had with Wade Phillips where Wade was really good at getting J.J. one-on-one, a yeah. lot of times with an inferior offensive lineman, and I think he'd get a lot of that with the Ravens.
2: He would, he would play the Judon role, but better than Judon. Yeah, that that would be amazing. Like, yeah, and honestly, I and mean, he he respects the hell out of Harbaugh. Uh, he loves Lamar. Like the we're co- <laughs> going back to the culture thing. The Ravens' culture is amazing. Yes, One that JJ would fit in with.
1: Oh, and yeah. Can you imagine going from whatever the hell Easterby is trying to do to go to that? And the Steelers are the same way. Like the Steelers and the Ravens are my all-time favorite teams. Were just oh they draft. Badasses that like love to play football and maybe also embarrass you in front of your family. You know, like they <laughs> they want they want guys that are like
2: old school barroom brawler types, and I love it. I, I think you would love the culture there. And you know how strong of a locker room leader Mike Tomlin is. They kept the lid on AB's crazy for like five <laughs> years. Yeah, that's true. That's pretty impressive. That's amazing. To me. <laughs> I think it was
1: JJ too. You know, at this point, it's funny when he was younger, he played inside more and then he kind of transitioned as he got older out to that, that edge rusher, uh, mode. And even though it's more physical abuse to go back inside, I think right now he's still, he's got man strength. If anything, he's stronger than he used to be because he's a, you know, he's in his thirties now. He's probably gonna have kids soon. So then I'll have dad (laughs) strength. Um, but I think he still, he still does really good work in close quarters and he can still use power really effectively where when he gets out on the edge, I don't know if the twitch is still there enough that there's enough of a balance, you know, like, I don't know if he, I don't know if he puts offensive tackles in as much of a, a power versus speed bind as he used to, where if he moves back inside and can work in close quarters, he's still got that suddenness about him.
2: And the one thing, I mean, you played. See, year ten for you in Jacksonville, you were a three technique that year, right? I was. um, No, no, my uh,
1: my last year, I've spent my last five years in Houston, so I was uh, a nose tackle my last five years. I was in training camp with Jacksonville, but
2: I got. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. So those, uh, year nine or, or whatever your last year in Houston was, as a nose, when you got a down block on you know 30 plus year old legs did it hurt a lot more than it did when jj was 23 it didn't hurt
1: as much but i tended to get injured a lot more you know <laughs> like it, i was uh i look i took enough toradol that nothing hurt but it was <laughs> but but i ended up getting injured so there was that but I, like now it doesn't matter as much anymore because nobody's lining up in 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 21 personnel um or, uh, tw- let's see 12. 12- I can't even think of what regular personnel is anymore. 12 personnel. Um, it, you know, it, like the power game isn't as much. Cause one thing that happened as I got older was, boy, I could anticipate power and counter mm-hmm. and all those things really well. So in some of those down blocks, I was making tackles for a loss because I just, I knew everything that was coming. You know, I, I, the guard would try to down block me on me and I would just cross his face and, um, and, and make a play. And, JJ still has that. Like JJ's recogn his play recognition and all that has gotten a lot faster. So you can avoid a lot of contact with that. I I don't know though, because everything's so much more about Nickel and Dime now that it's not mm-hmm. even really a matter of, okay, is he going to be playing a five technique or a four eye? It's more okay, is he gonna play is he gonna play three technique or is he gonna play defensive tackle and nickel and dime? Um, and and what is a team gonna do to to get him more opportunities? I mean, this year he was playing outside linebacker at times this year because they just had to have somebody out there to set the edge. They weren't like it looked like they were playing a 4 3, but
2: like, no, it was a 3 4 with JJ as an outside linebacker. And I I think um, I would almost use him in like the Michael Bennett role in, uh, you know, like that, that, uh, in that Pete Carroll style. I mean, I guess you can call it a Jimmy Johnson style 4-3 because that's essentially what it was, except Michael Bennett as their base end would then kick inside and be a three technique. And Nick, yeah. you could very easily do that of like, Hey, we're going to run a one gap 4-3 with him as the base end. Cause he can play, you know, C and B at the same time. And then we'll rock and roll with guys just penetrating from the backside. JJ will hold the front side. And then as soon as we stop the run, kick him inside and just go whoop some guards ass that doesn't have 34 and a half inch arms, like, you could very easily do that. The hard part is finding a defense that will do that. Right, that can accommodate. <laughs> might, but yeah,
1: yeah, because and, and that that requires versatility out of your other guys, too. Um, I, I think boy they, <laughs> they lined him up at nose and bare fronts sometimes this year, and that got me wondering, like, I wonder if we could talk... Uh, I actually tried to talk JJ into, like, bulking up to 345 and playing nose tackle for a few <laughs> years. <laughs> can you imagine, like, what he would do? Because <laughs> uh, they put him... They put him as a nose tackle with a bare front and then just gave him a They, they I, I think they had him play a double zero, which is you just play backside of anything. You just charge straight ahead. You're not trying to two yeah. gap or anything. And at his, at his current weight, that was just devastating. Cause he would bisect the the offense right away. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think, I think if he finds the right scheme, he's going to be just fine. I think he's. I think he's got some more productive seasons in him. It's just a a matter of staying healthy. Have you since you started doing the film room and I guess really since you started working at NFL Network, have you like do you still appreciate the game as a fan uh, as much as you used to or is it hard for you to turn off your analytical brain because you get super in, in depth with a lot of this stuff?
2: I think it depends on the game I'm watching. Like if I'm watching a game on Sunday that I specifically studied for, like if I did an episode on it, it's like, oh, you know, I if I studied Sean McVeigh's offense all week and I was watching that game on Sunday, I, I would look at it from an analyst because I, I you know I would want to see how right I was or how wrong I was. But if it's a game that like I didn't really do any prep for any studying for at all, if it's just some you know random, like Browns Ravens game in week 3 that I'm just watching just for entertainment's sake I'll kind of turn it off and then uh I'll, I'll save the analysis for when I go back to the all 22 but yeah. so it just depends on the game I'm watching like for the Super Bowl you know I did a lot of work for that one um and so I was I was watching that one more analytically and it seems like every 5 seconds I was like Mike Evans is one on one Mike Evans is one on one Did you get uh did you get it a- did you get your technical issues fixed? I know you
1: you'd been working on the Kansas City uh a Kansas City breakdown and you just couldn't get it.
2: Yeah, I figured mine, out right? a workaround like the day after the Super Bowl. Yeah. Because it's still it's still a problem, but I figured out the workaround. So I basically just changed my topic from the Bucks offense to uh the Todd Bulls defense. I, I'm actually doing like a lot of stuff on split field coverages for this episode. Uh in particular, how the Chiefs, um, if you're familiar with like Saban language. Uh, There's like a a a match quarters concept to uh, to the trip side called stubby which is like the main thing that Saban runs to Mm -hmm. trips Um, and the Bucks ran that over and over and over again in like that typical Kansas City shot area of the field like 30 to 40 yards outside of the end zone because they have a nickel and the thing in stubby like the nickel is pretty much isolated on the on the vertical from number two so if you put a guy like pringle or tyreek or any of those guys that run four four like kansas city is used to being able to take the shot to number two and you know get easy touchdowns out of it but the thing is tampa running stubby in that area because their nickel corner sean murphy bunting is six foot runs four four one and has a 41 inch vert crazy athlete so they couldn't get over the top of them and they kept trying it over and over and over again and Pat kept holding the ball because he was expecting they were going to be able to hit those shots and they just couldn't do it and yeah. he got crushed because of it so I'm doing the episode on that and how you know they they had great you know quick game adjustments to when the Buffalo defense was giving them split field stuff and then they totally went away from it against Tampa and it in my opinion, cost them the game.
1: That's one thing I've always been impressed with, with you is, um, how much you're able to pick up on the terminology between schemes and almost like through the different lineologies of, of different coaches, how much, how much are you getting that from coaches themselves versus just reading articles and trying how are you picking up on all these
2: different schemes? So there's a, there's a few different resources I use. Um, I'm I'm buddies with Coach Vass, who runs the uh, Make Defense Great Again podcast. Who's I mean he's dedicated his life to studying this stuff, and so I'll I'll pick his brain and I'll be like, Hey, is this quarters? Is this cover five? And then he'll just tell me like the exact call because he knows all all the Saban language. Uh, Kyle Cogan's a great resource for me. I have a book by Cameron Soren called the past coverage glossary that I cannot recommend highly enough it has I got like, that and I wonder if you're the one that recommended that
1: to me its that black it's so board. good I'm yeah, yeah. I got it a couple I start I know but you've you've got um you've got more patience and less add than I do <laughs> it, it is but you know you're right because you can kind of just pick these things up and there's like two pages written about each coverage like yeah. I'm looking at yeah like cover five also known as just dog by, uh, so by Nick if, Saban. if you
2: go go to page 97 that's where they <laughs> do stubby and then stump Okay. I have that page memorized because I have to go back to Stubby all the freaking time. That's where he he starts doing the box coverages. Um, and that's that was like the main one that Tampa was running. And so I'm doing an episode on that. Uh,
1: look, is somebody that sat through multiple defensive meeting rooms listening to Vic Fangio talk about uh, cover seven and cover six uh, and not not, <laughs> not understanding anything about any of it? I'm like, oh,
2: <laughs> you're <laughs> like, I'm a defensive lineman. Just tell me the funds. <laughs> tell me what to do. <laughs> well,
1: it's just if they wouldn't change it from week to week, that's the damn problem problem it's all the changes <laughs> so, did you yeah. ever
2: have to make a transition from like a one gap to a two gap and then back to a one gap system like how what were the, the challenges for you on that uh
1: I did I always enjoyed it um okay I will tell you the best transition I ever made was when I was in Jacksonville we were running a four three you know Dom Capers was there one year but he pretty much changed his actually dom was in jacksonville for two years but he kind of changed his scheme to fit the personnel we had which back then you know it meant more to be a four three versus a three four back then mm-hmm. um so i didn't really get the full dom capers experience when i came here to houston then dom had his his defense in place and todd grantham was my defensive line coach And they had an entire system that changed your technique as a defensive lineman based on formation and tendency of the offense and then whichever coverage you were in as a defense like that was the first time in my football career that is a simpleton defensive lineman i was supposed to know what coverage we were playing and how it affected my technique Ooh, kind of given play that's interesting because if we were in you know if we were in dog one or if we were in seven or if we were playing something in cover three we were allowed to be more aggressive and we became yeah. more of a gap heavy defensive lineman if we were playing if we were in cover two um, or anything. I mean, they made it real simple for the defensive lineman. It was okay. If you're in an even, if you're in an even coverage, then you're going to play more thick down the middle of mm-hmm. the offensive lineman. If you're in an odd coverage, you're going to play more aggressive and more, uh, more in the gap. So that was really cool. Cause I've always been a guy that like worried too much about screwing up and worried about being too <laughs> selfish. So it kind of freed yeah. me. And then, and then especially the best thing was that this was back when you, you faced a lot more fullbacks. Um, Based on backfield formation, you would, we had a gap technique to where like I might be lined up in a tilt nose, but if I had a near eye where I had a fullback and a tight end to my side, I was just blasting through that near shoulder, that near inside shoulder of the guard. Yeah. And so, so in case it was power, um, I could blow the guard up. If it was counter, I could just get more into the gap and get upfield and try to blow something up. Um, so like that. That changed me completely. So I became I became a much more productive football player like overnight because I actually all of a sudden was thinking as a defensive lineman. So wow. that that part was cool. And we never two gapped. We very rarely did a genuine two gap with Dom's defense. Uh, like at nose tackle, we would play backside a gap. So mm. if it was zone, yeah, you know, I was supposed to just get up field. It's frustrating because I think a lot of <laughs> I always think about like, people watching the film. And I would always dread that they thought I was supposed to be two-gapping and that I must just be really bad at it because I'd always yeah. end up backside. So uh, so that was fun, too, because that was more aggressive. So I ended up, like, as a nose tackle, making a ton of tackles and being really productive just because that scheme was so good. And then when Mike London came in in 2006, we ended up being an awful football team. But Mike London was a defensive line coach. He'd go on to be the, the head coach at Virginia for a long time. Um, but he was more of a, he came from an old school three, four, where you two gapped a lot. So Mm -hmm. we changed to two gapping. That was the first time in my career. I actually two gapped as a nose guard. And I, I loved that. Oh, that was 2005. Actually, that was 2005. Um, I loved that. Like, cause it's, it kind of appealed to my more just, Hey, be unselfish, soak up blocks. Um, I, I could read and react really well. So Uh like, so for me, it was always. I like the challenge of learning new techniques um, and, and is like kind of adding something to your toolbox each step along the way. The thing that sucks though, is that like you said about what, what it feels like you asked what it feels like when you're in your 10th year in the NFL, like <laughs> when you start getting really, really smart, that's when your body starts giving out on you and it, and it sucks. Cause you, you see stuff coming, you know, it's coming like you could, you can make that play if you just didn't uh, have one of your knees blown out the play before.
2: And and the thing is, back when you played, too, um, you know, when everybody was still on, like, we're running wide zone all the damn time, and they would all, you know, everybody seemed like to be like a, a Gibbs disciple, especially you, specifically. I mean, you're getting cut blocks for the backside yeah. guard every single play. And on 10-year, you know, 10-year veteran knees, that's just got to kill you. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I was different with that, too, because... I guess I just understood what their scheme was. And I always felt because I, I played really well with my hands. I was more of a, like, I, I was much better with my hands than I was with my feet. So for me, I actually was usually pretty productive against those schemes. Cause I kind of got a good feel for the flow and when the, when the running back was going to cut back and I kept guys off of my legs. So mm. I always looked at that. Like I would, before I would go against any Denver style scheme, I would just watch a ton of film. And usually with those zone schemes, especially those guys back in the day would give away a lot with their splits. So you could really, you could start to tell, you know, which direction the play was going. You could tell when it was boot, all of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, you're right. Those, those damn dirty, the, the, the old, uh, high lows in the cup locks. That was, it did suck when they get, they got you. Cause you, the, the downside of playing those teams was a lot of times you'd feel like you had a good play going and then you'd realize, oh shit it's bootleg <laughs> like, like, like you thought you were going to have it. They were so good at selling it. Like they were so good at making it look like it was run. And then all of a sudden just like, Oh no, Elway's like 18 yards away from me already and sprinting at a dead sprint towards the other sideline. So that, that I, still still- like, uh,
2: I still feel like, I still feel like Shab had one of the best play action fakes I've ever seen because he would even like go so far as to like reach extra as if he didn't get to his landmark and then tuck it to the last second. I was like, Oh, you're crafty, man. I yeah.
1: That's one thing. It's undersold, and I think Josh Allen does a really good job of carrying out his fakes. Um, I, I think some some quarterbacks don't understand that the exaggeration matters. It's mm-hmm. like like as a defensive player. It's not like you're, you're trying to figure out completely whether like, Oh no, that was a subtle, that was a subtle jab step or something. (laughs) It's like, it's big movements. Catch your eye, you know, And the guys that really exaggerate the fakes and really exaggerate their motions, they screw guys up and it, it only takes a, it only takes a half step. Um, and, and some, some guys just really, the quarterbacks that really, really care about it. It, it makes a big difference.
2: That was a big thing that Peyton used to do. I mean, yeah. he would he would dedicate rep after rep after rep to just getting the fake right. And he was maniacal about it. But that's also why you have such a pain in the ass to play against because yeah. everything's the same.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. It's the, those simple little things, despite all the complexities that you see now both on offense and defense, some of those little simple things, really really make a big difference i also you know what you know what, peyton manning and tom brady both i always get a sense that they respect the intelligence of defensive players um even though they're really good at just exploiting the stupidities of of all of us like because we all have tells we all have little things uh but i think there's there are a lot of coordinators and coaches in the league now that don't understand how smart some defensive players are and they give away so much of their scheme Either through tells or, you know, the tendencies are easy to figure out. Like everybody's got computers and everybody knows what their play calling tendencies are and their weaknesses are. But some of the things that offenses do, you know, uh, that that defenses can pick up on or that, that sometimes defenses can force quarterbacks into, into audibles or into decisions. And in, in some, you can tell that some offenses just don't quite get it. Like they just don't have an appreciation for how they're being played. And that's, that's frustrating. Cause I've seen, I've watched the Texans, you know, at various times and O'Brien got better at it over the years, but you could watch, uh, you could watch in certain games where the safeties were dictating which play they were going to get, you yeah. know, the Vikings a few years ago, it was freaky how almost before every single run play right before the snap. Harrison Smith would just sprint down into the box because you could see oh he, 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 they, they showed something that the Texans would check to run against. And then they would, and then right before the snap, they'd come up and they'd play the run. Um, the, the Steelers this year, there was a, the, the Steelers game, um, every single time they sent a DB blitz, it was like a run blitz. The DB was focused and trained in directly on on the, on the running back. Like there's, you you know, you can just sense and I don't like, I don't, I'm not going to sit, I'm not going to sit for 18 hours and figure out what the tells are. Um, But they just,
2: some offensive coordinators just don't get it. There's a a great story. I think it was from Akeem Hicks. Who's like one of my all-time favorite defensive linemen. I love Akeem Hicks. And he was saying that he could tell if it was power away from him, by looking at the fingers of the guard, if they weren't wearing gloves, because if the fingers were white as if like blood was being forced in the fingers because weight was on it, he knew like, okay, play's coming here. I'm just gonna get into his chest and gum everything up. If his fingers were not white, that means he didn't have a whole lot of pressure on his hand, so he was leaning back on his heels, and he was going to pull the other way. Yeah. So anytime the fingers weren't white, he would literally just look at at Roquan and be like, "It's going over there." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well,
1: like, you got business. Like Gary Walker and I played next to each other for a long time, so we kind of got our our own little shorthand for when we knew what play was coming. And uh, the, the fingers are a really good uh, like the fingers, the weight and the stance, uh, splits. And, and all of this stuff gets accentuated as the game goes along. That's one thing as a defensive lineman, you learn to figure out, you learn to to watch throughout the game. And sometimes something isn't a tendency in the first quarter, but by the fourth quarter, like those, <laughs> guys, those guys are fat. They get tired. They start, <laughs> if they're going to, if they're going to be pulling, they start cheating back. Like they'll, they'll be a little a few more inches off the line of scrimmage, or they'll give themselves a little bit more room. So a bigger split from the center and you, and, the tendencies get exaggerated later in the game when those guys start to get tired there are also this would be a good project for you somebody told me once i can't even remember which defensive lineman it was it was in my last year it was after i had already torn my acl so i was never going to be able to, to to work on this he told me that steve hutchinson had a little tell where he would flick his finger in in the so if he had his right hand down in his stance um, for instance, and mm-hmm. in his left hand, he would like flick his finger right before the snap. And so if it was on, and if it was on two, he wouldn't do it. Like he would only do it right before the snap was coming. It was like
2: a, like a timing mechanism for him. Almost.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So like, so the defensive lineman that was telling me this said that he's, he had some of his best games against Steve Hutchinson. Cause he picked up on that. So I, I don't, uh, I don't know if it was, uh, this is before even the NFL, the rewind stuff, uh, would have been out there. Um, but that kind of stuff, you'd kind of pick stuff up like that over the years. And, and you don't tell anybody about it publicly until afterwards. I get, I get pissed <laughs> off sometimes when I you hear these guys. Somebody did it this year. I can't remember who it was. You'll hear these guys say like, oh, yeah, well, we knew that, we knew that the offense was running this because of some audible or, or some tell that somebody had. Like, why, why are you saying that? <laughs> like, this guy could do that for the
2: next five years and you've just given it up. They're going to have it fixed now next week. Well, it's like when JJ made that mistake in his second year, when he said, oh, I got the dolphins, uh, I got the Dolphins' cadence from Hard Knocks. That was when he had that breakout game in in Tannehill's first start, where he had like three sacks in like five minutes. Yeah. After the game, again, he was in his second year. He's like, "Yeah, I got their cadence from watching Hard Knocks this year." (laughs) And 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 then they changed it, and it's like, dude, you you had it, you had it forever. You could, it was easy sacks for the rest of your career. Yeah. Oh man, It, it happened.
1: And I'll go back to just offensive coordinators and offensive coaches sometimes not giving defenses credit. Um, the, the, the one year when Joe Pendry was the offensive coordinator, uh, the, the, the Texans were, they were checking, they were audibilizing when they saw a certain look. Like, and it was, I could tell, I was just sitting recovering on the sideline as a defensive lineman and I could tell exactly what was going on. And the Texans kept running this play for like two yards a clip. (laughs) And I remember I told, I I told an offensive coach about it at halftime and he just kind of looked at me like, well, what am I supposed to do with that? You know, (laughs) just, just stop, stop doing it. Just stop the, stop the insanity, change something up. Uh, like, I don't, I don't like to crush those guys. Cause obviously like as an offensive coach, it's, it's like asking a band to play a, a song that they've never practiced before. <laughs> you know, you can't just go up to some band and like, Hey, play American pie. Like, I don't know. They've never played American pie before. It's not as simple as that. I think sometimes I, as a defensive player, think that it's, it's easier for offenses to switch on the fly than it is. You know, the great offenses do. Yeah. You yeah. Know? That's like the well that's what's so amazing about the Chiefs is that usually teams that try to throw a bunch of wrinkles in make a whole lot of mental errors too mm-hmm. but they throw all these wrinkles in and they do all this they do all this stuff <laughs> like in their RPO game that just flies against conventional wisdom and doesn't make any schematic sense but because of that it works like I don't I don't know how they do that and and do it with such crisp execution
2: Yeah, I mean, I did I did the video the week before the Super Bowl about the Chiefs RPO game, explaining how it's not about box count, which everybody's been trained over the last eight or nine years. Like RPOs are about box count. If you get a heavy box, you throw it. Uh, If you get a light box, you run it. But the Chiefs don't do it that way. It's like 80 percent throws on their RPOs and it's less about box count and it's more about where's the mic lined up. You know, it's like if he's in a 50, that means he's out of position in the slant window for Tyreek behind him. If he's in a 30, that means he's out of position for the drag route to Kelsey. If both of the linebackers are on the backside, they're just going to hand it off because A, it's six on six. But B, again, if, if there's no linebacker in the front side B, B gap bubble, like it's easy yards for them. So it's it was entirely not about box count and all about alignment and Buffalo could not do anything about it I, yeah. I like I, I I felt for Leslie because I mean they got a hundred yards running it three times
1: <laughs> yeah yeah I it's uh man I I I watch those guys and you and you realize man when they've when they've figured something out and they've got you you're almost just you're defenseless against it and you and you try to until you figure it out but yeah man Except, well, the, the, you don't worry about it in the Super Bowl here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, really appreciate it, man. And uh, like I said, I apologize uh, about making it about the Texans when I was... Uh, I, I didn't think I was going to make it about the Texans, but the, these damn bastards can't help it at least once a week.
2: <laughs> Every it. day, it's something new. I know, <laughs> I, know, I, know I know.
1: So everybody, uh, go subscribe to The Film Room on YouTube. You'll like it. Oh, that was the other thing I, that I was amazed by was that you do this super technical stuff and you break things down in extreme detail. And then you put a poll out on Twitter the other day where you just wanted to kind of get a feel for what the age group of your followers were. And I was really, really surprised that on Twitter, an app that tends to trend older, there's not as many kids into Twitter um, as some of the other social media platforms, you have a very young audience. Like you've got a lot of people in their mid twenties and younger watching this really in-depth film breakdown. I feel, I felt like, uh, it, it made me feel good about Gen Z. It made me feel about just the, the, the brightness and the, uh, the intellectual curiosity of Gen Z.
2: And it's, it's a lot of players that follow me too. Like, you know, high school players, college players, and some of them now going into the NFL. Um, like I've, I've gotten messages from kids that either were high school or like, you know, freshmen in college and they're like, love what you do. Hope you make an episode on me. And this year, one of them uh, is probably going to be a top 50 pick. Uh, And I, I, it, it, I get so stoked about it.
1: Yeah, that is really cool. And, and I know the, the other really cool thing I saw you do this year was like, you have, you're you're intellectually honest. I think a lot of times guys want to do a film breakdown and act like they they know way more than they do. Where you know so much and you know enough to know that you can never know everything. Um, so it was when you saw that disparity in the the advanced stats of Tyron Matthew and passes that he had let up. So you kind of like went in and investigated. Okay, how come this one stat service is showing that Tyron Matthew has allowed this many receptions um, when you couldn't seem to find them on film? Uh, and and Tyron Matthew actually got involved in that, did he not?
2: Yeah, he, he. I tweeted out, and that's I was working on an entirely different episode, and then I, I was working on a Buddha Baker ep- Buddha Baker episode because I love Buddha Baker and I tweeted out like, okay, here's the stats for Buddha Baker. And it's like, that is more tackles than blah, more sacks than blah, less, less catches given up than Tyron Matthew. And I put the number of catches that pro football focus had Tyron Matthew giving up. And then Tyron somehow found it and quote tweeted. And he's like, show me, show me on the film where I gave up that many catches. So I was like, you know what, that's a fascinating topic. I'm going to pivot and do that one. And then I, I, was exchanging emails back and forth with like pffs like director of um analysis and i was i was going through every single completion that they charted against him and basically like giving my thoughts on it's like should that be really his and his and not and they actually took away a couple of them when like i I showed the film to him and i was like i don't know if this should go against tyron he's like you know what you're right let's change it um and so that that episode was fascinating it was different than anything i'd ever done because it was you know, both vindicating a player and vindicating a stat service at the same time and explaining how like this doesn't affect the grades. It's just the numbers and it's, a, yeah, it's and like, yeah, it's almost
1: on the accounting. Like it's sometimes in a defense and this probably, that's a, one of the hardest things to explain to novices. Sometimes is like in some defenses. Yeah. Like the, the, the offense, as long as they throw a good pass is going to complete that pass. And there's almost nothing the safety could have done about it because that's just where the hole is in that defense.
2: Yeah. It's like he's 12 yards off and it's a slant. What do you want him to do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so pro football
1: focus wasn't wrong necessarily for saying he quote unquote allowed that pass. It's just that you shouldn't, he's, they're also saying they don't mark him negative for it, but they're just showing who allowed like quote unquote allowed the pass.
2: Yeah. And that was like the point of the episode was to show like, Hey, sometimes the stats and the grades don't add up because they're two very different things and I think when people look at PFF um, they somehow feel like the grades are based on the stats when they're really not. Yeah that's what's hard.
1: It's The more information people get the harder it is to explain some things sometimes and the the, the hard one I have right now is trying to explain that okay look (laughs) Deshaun Watson is responsible for a lot of his sacks. Um, That doesn't that's not necessarily a bad thing and that doesn't exonerate the offensive line from any of the sacks that they allow but it also does paint some color like it it lends some color to the fact that the offensive line isn't as bad as the sack total is and almost the more you try to explain it, the more people either hear you as saying like Deshaun Watson is responsible for all his sacks or <laughs> or that you're saying that the Texans offensive line is awesome or that you're saying the Texans offensive line is trash. There's it's it's really hard, I think, for a lot of football audiences to to recognize that, no, there's multiple
2: reasons for for some things. Congratulations. You're a Seahawks fan now. It's the exact same argument with Russell. Yeah, you know, he's like, "Oh, I, I'm taking too many hits." It's like, well, a lot of those are on you, but yeah. like, you, you can't you can't hold the ball for seven seconds. Like, what do you want here? Yeah, yeah, and that sometimes I don't know with Deshaun. It's hey.
1: You hold on to the ball too long sometimes. He's gotten he's gotten way better at getting rid of the ball on rhythm and in time in general. Sometimes he holds on to the ball too long, but without him doing that sometimes and he's also not making some of those incredible magical plays. So I'm yeah, I'm okay with the balance and trying to find it somewhere. But I'll let it's
2: just equilibrium.
1: I'll let you go. It's Brett Coleman. Follow him on Twitter at just Brett Coleman, right? Yeah, uh, that's K-O-L-L-M-A-N-N. It's a very German spelling. (laughs) Two L's, two N's, one M. And uh, and I highly encourage you to subscribe to the film room. So I really appreciate you spending some time with me today, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.